Marie promptly took Nutcracker in her arms and had him crack nuts, though she picked the smallest ones. That way, the mannequin wouldn't have to open his mouth very wide, which basically didn't look so good. Louise joined Marie, and Fred Nutcracker also had him perform his duties for Louise, which he didn't seem to mind doing, since he smiled very amiably all the time. Fritz, meanwhile, had grown tired from all the riding and drilling, and when he heard the pleasurable cracking of nuts, he sprang over to his sisters and roared with laughter at the quaint mannequin. Now that Fritz also wanted to eat nuts, the little man passed from hand to hand, unable to halt his snapping open and shut. Fritz kept shoving in the biggest and hardest nuts. All at once, they heard a double crack. Then three little teeth fell out of Nutcracker's mouth, and his whole lower jaw turned loose and wobbly. Oh, my poor dear Nutcracker, Marie exclaimed, whisking him out of Fritz's hands. He's a stupid, simple-minded guy, said Fritz. He wants to be a Nutcracker, but he has no decent teeth. He probably doesn't understand his own work. Hand him over, Marie. He has to chew up nuts for me, even if he loses his remaining teeth. Even his entire jaw in the bargain. Who cares about that good for nothing? Welcome to Redeeming Reads. I'm Dylan. And I'm Taylor. And tonight we're going to be discussing the book by E.T.A. Hoffman, The Nutcracker. Yeah, The Nutcracker. And this is not what you think. This is not the um, the ballad, whatever the, the, the musical version is. This is the, uh, the book written by E.T.A. Hoffman. This is the original. The OG. Mm-hmm. It was written in German and then translated into English. Well, before we begin discussing the book, Taylor, what do you have to drink tonight? So I have a Colombian coffee from... Uh, whatever that place is called, Acoustic Java Coffee Roasters in Worcester. And this is a coffee I've talked about here on the podcast before, but it's a it's called Guava Banana. No clue why, but it does taste very much like bananas, which is a sort of off-putting flavor in some ways, if I'm honest, but it's also so interesting. And I think that's really what I like about this coffee. It's what draws me in is how fascinating it is when you take a sip of something and it tastes strikingly like another fruit. And this is one of the more distinct coffees I've ever had that tastes like bananas. So it's, uh, it's really good. Those are some of the notes at least. I've never had tasted banana in a coffee. That's what I'm saying. That's why it's so interesting. And it's actually great. I found out, I think I found out why it's an anaerobic natural processed coffee translate so anaerobic is without air so they basically ferment the beans the coffee bean the whole coffee bean i think Mm. i think natural processes with the whole outer shell on still because you can process coffee you can either take the shells off and then process the the inner uh the fruit itself Mm. or Mm -hmm. with the whole the whole bean and they process Mm. these without any oxygen so they put them in airtight containers and let them ferment. And that, depending on the the coffee itself, can produce more fruity flavors than normal, uh, which is really interesting. And it's also not super acidic. And often the fruitier coffees tend to be more acidic. So it's a really interesting combination when you can do that without air. And I think that's why hmm. this one is so interesting. But 
Um, this is one of the few I think I've tried that are specifically anaerobic. So I'm going to be definitely trying some more. I'll be looking for <laughs> more anaerobic blends around. Man, coffee science is just so cool. It's so deep. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so cool. What are you drinking tonight? So I'm drinking a coffee from Bolt Coffee. Um, it's called Niani. I don't know how to say it. I, I want to spell it, though, just so that you can understand why I'm so confused. Sure. Picture it in your mind. N-D-I-A-I-N-I space A-A. This has um, to be an African coffee? Yeah, it's from Kenya. Yeah. Um, the notes that they give, I I mean, that's really for me. When I go into a coffee shop and I look at the all the coffees, I just basically pick based upon what they say the notes are. You know, I don't always end up actually tasting that in them, but the notes that they gave were plum, kiwi, and rose water. Oh, rose water. Not water, <laughs> not rose. Rose water. Rose water. Um, And it's pretty good. Uh, I don't really taste those th- things in it, but it does have like uh, this type of acidity that I feel like I've tasted before. I don't know if you've ever had this experience taylor but like when you try all these different types of coffees and you're intentional about you know getting like single origins every now and then there's like a flavor that you pick up on that like strikes a chord and you're like i've had this before yeah this tastes like this one even though it's totally different um and even for me even that experience can be a little bit like nostalgic to whatever time it was that i drank that so something about this coffee Reminds me of some coffee that I had in like March 2021, right when we moved into our house. And so I don't know why, but when I drink it, it just reminds me of like early mornings that I would wake up and make this coffee. That's in, great. It definitely house. definitely triggers the memory for sure. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, it? They say it's like your strongest. Oh no, that's old, the olfactory sense of smell. I think is like the strongest, right? Yeah, sure. But I'm, it's they're related. Obviously, there's a combo thing happening there. Mm-hmm. Is it fruity? Is this? Is it? Does it, the notes yeah. at, at least match in that way? It is, but I don't know what fruit it is. I mean, yeah, I don't really like look at that coffee tasting wheel and just, and pick one for every coffee. But it's definitely on that fruitier side. I wouldn't be able to, you know, pinpoint it without looking. But it's good. It has that kind of like juicy acidity that, um, yeah, that I really enjoy. Sure, I found. Kenyan coffees can be really interesting, and Ethiopian coffees are some of my favorite ones, um, as we've discussed on here before, just because they tend to have those notes, the fruitier, lighter notes. And I think a lot of that has to do with the elevation it's grown at and just the region that Ethiopia is in. And Kenya is very similar, I think, geographically, topographically. So it can produce very similar coffees to an Ethiopian coffee. So... I'm definitely a fan. Although I see Mm. far fewer Kenyan coffees than Ethiopian ones. Let's jump into our discussion on The Nutcracker. Definitely. So yeah, it's a different book than The Ballet, or it's a different story. Um, In doing a little bit of research, it was written by a guy named E.T.A. Hoffman, who I think wrote various other children's, like classic children's stories. 
kind of like fairy tale inspired. And I think it's really similar to the ballet version, but um, it's a little bit like creepier almost and, and dark. Do you agree with that? <laughs> yeah. So this was super surprising to me. I mean, I, I guess I probably should have been prepared for it when I started reading, but I just wasn't. I knew the ballet uh, from going to see it, you know, in pop culture, but mm -hmm. I had no clue that the story was as dark as it was, but it, it's exactly like, and the more I, I learned about the story after I read it, the more it really tracks with that theme of German uh, fairy tales. It definitely has that vibe where it's like, oh, this is a nice lighthearted children's story. And then you learn the actual origins of it. And it's not that at all. Uh, it's really something much darker and much, um, you, you know, just surprising in how, how almost horror adjacent the story really is. Did you catch mm -hmm. on to that when you were reading too? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, and just for listeners, I guess to compare it, this might be, uh, it may be helpful or maybe unhelpful, but if like the ballet version that you know has a rat king in it with one head, the rat king in this in the original has seven heads. Yeah. So I mean, it's seven times as intense. Uh, <laughs> is my point. Um, but what you're saying is interesting about how it's like these German stories are just like creepy, and even like um, the whole thing with for those who know like Belschnickel, like the German Christmas tale. Yeah. It's just like a creepy dark version of santa who really is like obey like like behave well is almost ingrained in some of these like you know german cultural stories and i think this is maybe one of them definitely also i'm sure we'll get into the themes but I, if there is a moral to this story i don't think it's one that we typically latch on to at least in our modern age but we can <laughs> we can get into that more but it feels mm -hmm. like some of the major themes are like that how you look really matters and like all of like, there's just some weird stuff going on and mm, um, mm -hmm. it's yeah. It, the themes are much darker than you would expect. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And it's a children's story, <laughs> right? But it's not joyful at all. It's uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it would be terrifying, honestly, if, <laughs> if I was a kid reading this, but um I mean, I think it starts off very similar and there's a lot of the same characters. I mean, it's pretty much like just the plot line is a little bit different, I think. But um, there's these two children. There's Marie and Fritz who have this godfather who um, is like a clockmaker, inventor, kind of like this like kind of creepy eye patch type guy, <laughs> you know, who <laughs> um, he always fixes their clocks for their family. Um, I think they're maybe like a Victorian kind of, well, not Victorian because it's German, but like... I guess I would just say maybe like middle upper class, right, family. And it's Christmas time and he always brings them gifts for Christmas that are so intricate and well crafted and designed that they have to be put in a display case. But it starts out Christmas Eve and both Fritz and Marie are um, really excited for um, this their godfather, Drosselmeyer, um, to come and bring them uh, their Christmas gifts. Yeah, and one of these items the inventions of Drosselmeyer is this nutcracker who ends up really sort of being the star uh, of the whole story hence why it's named the nutcracker um and sort of the the short version is that uh these toys after the children play with some of these toys 
the at night after they've put them all they come back to life at that point and hence um sort of the ballet the fight between these toy soldiers um that fritz had and the nutcracker and this mouse king comes out and there's this really kind of creepy dreamlike moment when you know the the multi-headed seven-headed mouse king uh comes out of the the woodwork and with all his mice army and they go to battle with the nutcracker but marie helps the nutcracker in the battle uh a little bit and uh they kind of wake up the next morning and marie has been injured in this battle she falls into a toy cabinet and cuts her arm and she's trying to tell her parents about this whole story, but really they don't believe her because they're adults and who would believe that fantastical story. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's peculiar is that in that dream, like uh, battle with the rats, she notices um, that Drosselmeyer is there. He's like up on the clock himself. So somehow he's like involved even in this dream state. And then she wakes up the next morning and is basically scolded by her parents on Christmas morning for being a naughty girl and like almost killing herself, like almost bleeding out. I think she got cut by the glass, you know. Um, but then Drosselmeyer comes by and um, she tells him about what happened because he was there, right? And I think then that's when he opens up to her and tells her that there's more backstory. He has some kind of like um, <laughs> insight into her dream even though, um, I don't know, he kind of also is there scolding her with his, with her parents at the same time. Uh, but he goes into the kind of backstory of the Nutcracker himself. Yeah, he tells her this long story about the Nutcracker. Um, and the Nutcracker, essentially in this story, uh, in this fictional kingdom or this place that Uh, Marie doesn't know about this fantastical world. Uh, The Nutcracker sacrifices himself for this young woman who was cursed and turned into a Nutcracker herself. And he was um, sort of this princely character and came to save her. But at the last moment, he is sort of betrayed by uh, the Mouse Queen. And he himself becomes a Nutcracker. And that's how he came to be in his current form. Uh, and that's this nutcracker that n- now she knows essentially is the comparison that is made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that she's a princess and that the mouse queen puts a curse on her, making her, I mean, it's like, this is like the freaky, one of the freaky parts of the story. It, like causes her to become like, her eyes get big and she like um, basically resembles something like a like a gnome, right? Like she gets all disfigured and instead of a beautiful princess is ugly. And then that, when it gets transferred to the Nutcracker, who was a real person at one point, is like kind of why he looks like that, you know? And yeah, why, yeah, yeah. I guess you could say, <laughs> Nutcrackers, that's like the origin story of why they look like they have big eyes and big teeth, you know? Um, so he takes on that curse and is rejected by this princess. Um, then, um, I think over the next couple nights, is it then this, uh, the rat 
king actually comes to uh, Marie as she's in her bed and like is kind of threatening her unless she gives him these precious toys. And um, then the nutcracker basically comes to her rescue and um, he says, you know, if you can get me a sword, I will go, you know, kill the, the seven-headed rat king. And so then one night, I think he does because I think she gives him her brother's toy sword and he comes back with all seven crowns of the Rat King. Yes, so the Nutcracker's sort of Marie's protector at that moment. Um, he takes her to another fantastical world, um, which is, you know, full of wonderful things. Uh, it's full of sort of all of the things that she sees in these dreams. Um what's it called? The doll kingdom. That's what I was looking mm-hmm. for. And mm-hmm. she sees all of these, these dolls that have come to life. It's sort of the culmination of all these beautiful things has its own dark spin. Also. <laughs> um, it's also sort of a creepy dreamland, but um, it's a place where the nutcracker is held in high esteem. He's sort of a princely figure in this other kingdom. And mm-hmm. that. After she sort of awakes from that dream, she's back in the real world and the conflict between the, the Mouse King and the Nutcracker is over at that point. And um, Marie at one point is with Drosselmeyer again as he's tinkering in his shop and um, she's thinking about the Nutcracker and all of the things that she experienced and she's basically saying she wouldn't have behaved in the same way that the that princess did, that she would have loved the Nutcracker uh, because of all that he did for her. And sort of in that moment, there's some sort of commotion. And when she comes to this boy, young man, who is Drosselmeyer's nephew, comes in and she says, and he says that she basically has saved him from the curse. So he is supposed to be the Nutcracker, this nephew of Drosselmeyer. And they end in a very happy way by becoming engaged, although there's a kind of a future wedding date set. And um, she sort of returns back into the dream worlds of the Doll Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So the end, happy ending. <laughs> I guess. But yeah, there's so many there's so many weird elements to it that are um, creepy and, and dark and just confusing and, and you don't know what's like real or is it actually real at all? Is it like a dream? Um, or is it is the reality the fact that Drosselmeyer is like intricately involved in like crafting this, you know, fake reality for her? Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. One symbol that I think is important to interpreting the story is one of the first gifts that he gives to Marie and Fritz, which is this castle. It's a really um, like intricately designed castle that has all these little rotating, swiveling parts, like a toy castle, I guess. Um, but all the little people in it that are standing in the windows and sitting in you know the chairs and everything rotate around in an intricate like clockwork way, of course. But the kids want to like 
play with it, but they, they basically can't because the people don't move in the castle. They only rotate around and around and around and over and over, just repeat the same cycle. And um, so I feel like that's a that that's one way to interpret the story is that it's kind of a condemnation of um, almost the futility of society or how larger society looks down on dreamers, right? <laughs> and then really when you wake up, it's just, um, you know, it's this kind of like, um, yeah, just like dreamless reality of just doing the same things over and over again. And there's no room for like the free thinker or the dreamer. Yeah, I, I think you're on track there. One of the things I saw in some of just the, the discussion of the analysis of, of The Nutcracker, which it's a children's book, but a theme of coming of age is definitely written in there somewhere. And I was actually getting some parallels to what we talked about last month in in a room with a view. Um, because it's sort of a, a woman who's constrained by society, maybe, and that way with the as the little yeah. figures in the castle are constrained to very certain clockwork movements. That's also her life. She's in this this very specific setting. And in some ways, the, the Nutcracker and being taken to the um, kingdom, the doll kingdom, is sort of a, a freedom from the bounds of that society that she's living in. Um, and I, in some ways, I feel like that's too deep for this story. <laughs> because when you start reading it, you're like, what is happening? Um, but... I think for Hoffman, that's probably a realistic idea of what he was trying to convey in writing it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And her parents also, the only role they really play in the story is to like try to keep her in line and, and yeah, constrain her. Um, and if there's that kind of common thread of many fairy tales like the Beauty and the Beast, um, and and others, I guess, where it's like, don't judge a book by its cover, or don't judge someone by how they look. And so she ends up, you know, falling in love and 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 caring for this Nutcracker, who is the one who's, you know, like kind of despised. I mean, even as we read in the intro with Fritz, um, he, I mean, ends up like breaking the teeth of Nutcracker and saying he doesn't even know what his real job is, like. Um, just kind of insulting him in that way. Whereas Fritz, I'm sorry, as, as Marie embraces him and despite the curse, I guess, that he took on himself <laughs> instead of the princess who rejected him, um, she is willing to look beyond that, um, you know, the external and rather see his like bravery and courage. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting, and I mentioned this earlier, but the, the, Princess Pirlipat, I think, or however that is supposed to be pronounced. Mm. The kind of worst case scenario for her in this societal structure was that she be sort of ugly. Mm. You know, I, mm. I thought that was an interesting take and maybe at this time period in this social structure for this mm. king and queen to have an ugly child was the worst possible scenario. And then also for the nutcracker like the curse is that he's ugly <laughs> and mm-hmm. i just thought that that was an interesting 
there's a lot of themes around things being attractive and shiny and it, to draw you in. And I just wonder if there's something underlying in that or if there's some commentary, but I feel like maybe more than anything, it's just a commentary on this time period um, and the type of writing that was coming out at that time where it's like the worst possible scenario for you is that you're just not attractive and that's mm -hmm. a curse and you have to be freed from that somehow is is sort of dark um, and just surprising. Yeah, you're right. And we see all these like blatant contrasts, like polarized, like the ugly kind of like nutcracker. And then this like beautiful, like candy land, yeah. you know, and doll land. It's like the two extremes are like interwoven yeah. in a sense. Like every supernatural kind of object is one of those two things, like the rats. Like that is the most hideous and grotesque, <laughs> like seven headed monster you could think of a rat. <laughs> yeah. Um, in comparison with this like joyous holiday um yeah can we it's just it's quite interesting yeah yeah can we talk about the narration a little bit and the dream like nature of mm. the whole story mm -hmm. because i again as i was reading some analysis of it someone mentioned kafka-esque which is maybe overused <laughs> but i think that fits here um my first thoughts when I started reading were like, this makes no sense whatsoever. It feels like, you know, when, a, when you hear a child tell a story <laughs> and it, it jumps from place to place and there's not always super clear transitions and the plot yeah. isn't always super clear and you don't know whether or not you're in a dreamlike scenario or you're, you know, you're in reality and which is which. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was really interesting to me. I think this is maybe a similar time period to even Kafka. And yeah, he was German, right? Yeah. So I don't know if there's some like surrealism at this time, maybe, or whatever the kind of philosophical movement that's driving some of that, but it definitely made for a, a dreamy and disjointed feel, um, mm. confusing at times, not. It's murky. Yeah, I totally agree. I wish I knew more about German culture at this time period than I do. But um, I agree with the way that it was written. I had this kind of experience where I read the first you know, couple chapters of it and I was like, oh, like I get it. Like this, this whole, it's just about, it's just this like story about children who are just like really imaginative and they're letting their, mind, their minds like, you know, run wild and frolic and, uh, create this like fun narrative for themselves. Uh, but then as I like read further, I was like, this is like, I don't know. Yeah. It's like nightmarish and, and it's actually really deep and it's not just a childish story. It's not like as if a child were telling a story after all, you know? Um, yeah. And so there's something, I mean, even about childhood and, and these stories to begin with that also just plays on like, guess for better or for worse like the fears of children and often i think in ways that try to teach moralistic obedience yeah and so i'm i guess i'm left not sure if this is shirking against that by the themes that, that are in it that seem anti that or if it's you know falling in line with it as 
you know, just being written as such. Yeah, if there is a moralistic theme, what do you think it would be? Something about, like, don't let society shape you or dictate what you should do. Just the kind of, you know... Yeah. Yeah. The, the oppression of the free thinker. Um, yeah, constraints of society. You know, society doesn't under, understand those who are <laughs> perceived as ugly, <laughs> you know, or looked down upon as a child or, you know, um, the the least of these, I guess, are the ones who are uh, uh, like oppressed. That's those are that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. No, I, I can. Do you notice anything different? No, I. I think I'm with you on the moralistic themes. I just, I, it feels like if you're trying to make a moralistic theme for children, it should be more clear. That's my, that's my take on it. At least if, if this was intended for children, that's a pretty deep, I don't know any child reading this who would be like, come away and be like, you know what? I really, I got to be careful about how I like (laughs) fit into society. Like, like psychoanalyzing themselves in the story. A hundred percent. But again, maybe this, like I know it, I know he intended it to be because I think it was part of a collection of stories for children. But mm. it's just hard for me to imagine that a child's <laughs> even coming close to that understanding, which tells me maybe more social commentary is happening than than we think. And I think mm-hmm. this, honestly, I don't even know. Maybe this is just a separate question: Is this a Christmas story at all? We've chose That's it. A good question. We chose it because of the theme, and traditionally, it is certainly associated with Christmas. But really, it has nothing to do with Christmas. You're right. Like it, it's set around Christmas time in the intro, and I think that's about as much Christmas as we get. I think they have a tree, and that's they have true. a Christmas meal. Yeah, and those are the only things and gifts, right? Yeah. So I guess it's I'm I don't know. There's something very the the German association with like toys and christmas i guess Mm. makes it feel very christmasy but just for you know for our listeners traditional traditionally associated with christmas but not very christmasy is what i would say but Mm -hmm. i was also thinking about a christmas carol which we did last year on the podcast and how like the dream realm being associated with Christmas is fascinating. And also mm. a dreamy nightmare being associated with Christmas. Yeah. Why why? Why is why are we associating nightmare with Christmas? It just seems yeah. counterintuitive, at least on the surface. I mean, yeah, even in Dickens, the ghost of Yeah. I mean ghosts. That's what I mean. Tons of all. ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> um that's a good question. You know? Something probably about the supernatural or I don't know, a holiday that gets people out of their, you know, normal routine lives. And, um, I, you know, I, I just said that. And also now I'm thinking about the headless horseman. I know that's not Halloween related exactly, (laughs) but like Mm -hmm. dreamy worlds can combine with nightmare is the, Mm -hmm. is the vibe there also just saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it definitely adds to the magic of it. And that's what makes, Maybe for kids, what makes it so exciting? I think it's the imagination part, maybe, mm-hmm. that makes it so exciting. The mystery. Yeah. Something supernatural that's also mysterious that you can't fully comprehend and understand and is even fearful because of your <laughs> lack of understanding of it. Definitely. And I think 
uh, the like every kid wants their toys to come alive you know so like that imaginative yeah. part and then like what's the worst possible thing you can imagine like the seven-headed rat king is obviously the best choice yeah for your <laughs> evil figure <laughs> right hmm. um yeah i'd like to just read a quote um from one person who was uh interpreting this that I read. I think his name is M. Grant Kellermeyer. Okay. He says, um, he's just kind of highlighting just how like adult and dark the, the book really is. He says, um, Drosselmeyer gaslights Marie by pretending not to know about her experiences, of which he is clearly the orchestrator, and frightens her multiple times with his weird stories and nonsense poems. Her parents, too, threaten her with punishment if she doesn't shut up about the Nutcracker, and by the end of the story, she's a disillusioned daydreamer, suffering from depression and a potentially fatal infection. And I did, that's not really, I mean, I didn't pick up on all those things. I think the way that he's, this person is interpreting the story just in a, maybe in a helpful way, like I identified a lot of those other themes that maybe I didn't pick up on. I don't know if he's going too far in that direction because of some personal bias or something. Cause I don't think it's quite as maybe bad as that, but it's just interesting how it's kind of true at the end. You're not sure if she, if, if it's real at all, like could it be that she's, this is just some like, maybe she just, maybe the parents are right. Maybe she did, you know, cut her arm open and get injured and then lose a lot of blood. And then she's in this, like fighting this infection with this, like, you know, fever dream. <laughs> um, it, it just totally reverses the, the, the story that, that we're told. And it would make sense that like, she's having all these dreamlike things and dreaming about her toys and the nutcracker, you know, it's just an interesting perspective that I think is worth at least, um, yeah, quoting and talking about that. You know, that makes sense. Some of the wildest dreams I've ever had were as a child when I had a fever. So yeah. I guess that's why they call them fever dreams. Me too. But mm-hmm. also some of the most terrifying. So that also tracks. You know, like the the realism <laughs> really is upped. But I feel like Drosselmeyer is probably worth talking about at least for a moment because mm. I don't know what his the point of him is because he's super mean. In mm-hmm. the story. So there's, I just right. found this one quote. It says, contrary to her usual behavior, Marie got quite angry when Godfather Drosselmeyer kept laughing and asking her how she managed to remain so lovely despite the thoroughly hideous mannequin. Hmm. Like. That he made. Exactly. For her. Yeah, but he's like making fun of her and laughing mm. at her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I just don't understand his role throughout the whole the whole story and if and if it is i don't know if it's not just an imaginative kid's story what is his function as a character in all of this yeah i mean is he just i mean like that other quote is he just gaslighting marie it does seem <laughs> that feeding way. her lies right and like it seems like he is somehow really is the kind of like orchestrator behind all of this like he's somehow involved in her dream like he's the first person that she sees in her dream she's like what are you doing up on the clock and then 
the battle begins, right? And then he, but then when she's awake, he like seemingly denies it, but then also tells her the story simultaneously of like the origins of the Nutcracker, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's confusing. It's very confusing. I concur. It's not It's not clear what his role is, I don't think. Because he's also a godfather, so he's not family. He's, you know, maybe like a family friend. Um, why? And, and, and he clearly, like, in some sense, like, loves or cares for the kids and, like, or he's at least benevolent in, like, making them toys. But then why would he go out of his way to frighten her about this and deceive her even about, like, what she's experiencing? Ah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't, and there's that weird connection also to his his nephew, like, is the Nutcracker at the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. But they share the same name. Like, I just, I was, I don't know. It feels weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. That it's just, it's a, it's a strange setup entirely. I don't know how much of that, too, is just the, like, writing style. And and it could be cultural parts. I don't understand this. As we mentioned at the beginning, is also a translation. So we know there's yeah, always got to wonder how much of it is intentionally in the original. Exactly, and how much of the like magic is lost in the the vocabulary that we just don't have in English. Maybe that is in German. There's a lot of things that I wonder about the story itself. Um, if we could read it in in the original language. Let's move on to um, reflecting on the story in light of the gospel. And as uh, believers and followers of Christ, uh, what do we make of this <laughs> this strange child story? <laughs> There's always tough ones to <laughs> to try. This and is one of bring them. full circle. This is a tough nut to crack. Ah, that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Um, uh, one thing that came to mind, at least for me, is maybe not necessarily strictly gospel related at this moment, but um, just for Christian worldview, I think it is fascinating that these fairy tales, when we try to simplify um, something really complex into a, a simple story, that sort of the, the arc of the story is more or less the same every time, right? Mm-hmm. This antagonist, protagonist, um, you know, the Nutcracker definitely has sort of a, a savior vibe to it. And mm-hmm. against evil. Yeah, he, he takes on the curse himself. Literally, right? yeah. He he sacrifices himself um, and takes on the curse, which I think at a very high level is sort of an archetypal story of all stories. The reason why reading is often so enriching to me as a believer is just because I see the fingerprints of the story of redemption, which we think is the best story, in all of them. Um, and even... In something as challenging as this, as a children's story, um, as a you know several hundred year old children's story, at that that feels weird to us. I still see sort of the the figure of that ultimate story in the background, um, where we have you know the the good versus evil, but not in a the sense of a dualistic theology, but uh, in the sense that. Um, our world at the moment as it is, is framed often in um, kind of that, that light that there's, there's corrupted and bad things and good things in the world. And I think the magic 
of the Nutcracker and going into that kind of other world, the Doll Kingdom, um, mm. is a just a fascinating draw that even as children we're drawn towards this other world uh, that is uh, so unlike ours, and it's a place of freedom um, and where the curse of the worlds is broken there. Um, and it's a place of peace and the, the, you know, this princely king reigns well. Uh, that's all ultimately from the underpinnings of Christian theology, even if it's just, you know, on a surface level. Did you see that as you read, Dylan? Yeah, certainly. You know, I was going to say there's a lot of things in this book that I, you know, I just don't like as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, like I don't like the idea of um, like deceiving and lying to children. Um, I don't like the <laughs> idea of frightening those who are weak and the needy, uh, you know, those who are the lowly or the least of these, um, you know, I think that we have a, we need to protect and, and care for and love children. And I don't see that happening in this story necessarily. And, you know, I also don't think that we should be demanding a legalistic obedience and just doing the right thing for children, um, rather, you know, showing them grace. So there's a lot of things that I, I, I identify as like main themes of the book that I just like personally recoil back from yeah, because of the grace of God I've experienced in my life and knowing that it, it flips all those ideologies on their head um, for the best. <laughs> and so I would much have preferred this to be a joyful, um, delightful Christmas story um, that just it that it just isn't. Um, so I don't find, I don't think the themes that are at least the author's intent are very congruent with the Christian worldview at all. Um, yet I do still see, like you're saying it in some sense, just this heroism points to a better hero, right? A better savior. Um, and there are, you know, there also are good themes, I guess, like don't, you know, not judging someone based upon how they appear, but judging someone's heart, you know, God, um, God looks on the heart rather than the exterior. Um, and, uh, Jesus, you know, teaches the same when he speaks with the Pharisees and condemns them as hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. And so, you know, there are simultaneously maybe some, some good themes to draw out of it, but I feel like those good themes in this work are framed within a larger construct and framework of the bad themes <laughs> that I don't like <laughs> or agree with. So it's kind of, I'm conflicted on it. I definitely see that. It does feel legalistic uh, to a point where it's, it's ridiculous to us, I think. Yeah, often in these books, I think we try to find those little nuggets of truth and pull them out. And uh, just like in some in some books, like I, th I think of like Walden that we read. And um, <laughs> I mean, like Brothers Karamazov, right? There's such good, like well-conveyed truths that have like spiritually encouraged me. Um, and I just don't feel that way about this book. <laughs> if anything, this is like spiritually discouraging and, you know, in that way, hopefully it points me to, <laughs> to the gospel as, as redemption for, um, you know, e the evil and corruption that we see in the book. But, um, yeah, it, it doesn't seem in that, in that sense, it just doesn't seem to really match the Christmas, 
spirit. (laughs) I'm with you there. I was thinking about how I typically gauge books. And one of the things is like, am I going to read this again ever? And the answer I'm pretty sure for this one is probably not. I just, I don't think I'm going to have the desire. If if something really um, connects with me in a way that, um, you know, I, I find value in, you know, morally or otherwise, I mean, something like a Christmas Carol um, that has just pretty incredible redemptive themes to them. I'll definitely reread that. In this case, I'm. I think I'm gonna pass on rereading the Nutcracker again. <laughs> now, yeah, will I go see the ballet again? Definitely. Yes, the ballet is good. I, I prefer it, the ballet. That's you know? what I mean. It's also <laughs> happier than this. I think, it is. or at least the way I remembered it was happier than this. Yeah, and you know, one interesting uh, thing is that, that I had noticed while I was looking into the book. When, but first, when I was like deciding what maybe book to um, propose for this month was that um, Alexander Dumas, I think is how you say his name. I think he actually has like a retelling of this story or maybe it's his own translation, but he adds themes. And from what I was reading, if I understand correctly, his like, he has a more bright and cheery take on the story that I think dispenses with some of the darkness and that his version, I think, is probably what influenced the ballet more so. And so I think that's interesting. I'd like to, I I wouldn't, I don't think read it, but I'd just like to know uh, the the differences. Yeah. I mean, also the music was done by Tchaikovsky and that, and that just probably makes overall everything better. So (laughs) who is that? I don't know. (laughs) He was a, he was a Russian composer um, who was somewhat popular uh, mm. So he, you know, it, I think it's the music and the ballet that really became more popular than the story. And maybe mm-hmm. that's, you know, for good reason. Yeah. Maybe we know now why. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, not necessarily the uh, the encouraging, uplifting Christmas story, um, you know, that we wanted it to be. But I still think it, like I, I generally enjoyed reading it, though. It's a fascinating enough story. And there's something about the just it's it's the most like magical of the books that we've read, I think. Like talking animals <laughs> and mice, you know. Um, yeah, it's I, just a really unique book to say that we've re- had on the podcast. And so I appreciate it for that. For sure. It, I think it's the first children's book we've read also. No. Yeah. Which is yeah. a whole different world entirely. This is not mm-hmm. our wheelhouse. But mm-hmm. we've done And maybe it, it's so a good, good place to yeah, to also continue in the future. Definitely. Children's classics. Probably all much deeper than you <laughs> imagine. Yeah, probably. Uh, we don't yet have a book for next month, so N- nothing official. It'll be a surprise. Definitely. Yeah, we'll see you in twenty twenty four with a surprise <laughs> um, book. But until then, Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. And thanks for listening to this episode.